Hey guys and welcome to the Sustainable Grid podcast. Today is the first episode of this podcast and we'll be speaking to you about sustainable development goals, their role in contemporary society and we'll be placing specific reference to labor rights and you know union rights in general. My name is Sairaj Gaurar and my co-host is Lalit Dash. Today's guest for the podcast and for our first episode is Mr. Vishwajit Sadananda. He is currently an advocate for Arista Chambers and he's practicing in the Karnataka High Court. He's been a senior associate at Puvaya and Co. Advocates and Solicitors. He's also worked at the Office of the Additional Solicitor General of India in Delhi. He's been a law clerk to Mr. Justice Murlidhar. He's graduated from Nalsar University, Hyderabad and got his master's degree from Michigan University Law School. Thank you so much for being with us. We're extremely happy to have you today, sir. Hi, Sairaj. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Yes, sir. So uh, today's conversation, sir, revolves around sustainable development goals and in perspective, especially with labor laws and how labor laws in itself are affected. We want to speak about labor laws in general because of the fact that there is so much happening related to labor laws and related to rights of labor in itself. Right. We, have, we saw through the months of April and May the migrant labor crisis and uh, how there was so much commotion across the entire country. A problem that affected the entire subcontinent in general because of the fact that many workers are trying to get back to their house from the urban cities that they were working in. So my co-host today is Mr. Lalit Dash. He is also a student from St. Joseph's College of Commerce and he'll be taking over to ask you the question, sir. Hi, sir. Uh, glad to have you over here with us for the podcast on such a short notice. means a lot. So before we get to the migrant worker example and the brief discussion of this podcast, I just want to know what is your overall view about the labor rights and how have they come across in 21st century, especially in India? Uh, thanks, uh, Lalit, for that question. Uh, uh, to give you a short answer, I think India has a very long way to go in the context of labor rights. Um, I think what effective labor laws do is they not only deal with the rights of workers and the welfare of the workers, but also provide for an ease of doing business, right? I, I feel that a lot of conversation on labor rights revolves around this clash of ideals between economic growth and uh, businesses versus where versus the rights of workers as if they're two contradictory ideas and principles that can't work well together. In fact, I think that's completely opposite. Uh, if I can just give you a small example. Now, for example, uh, private consumption in India accounts to about 60% of the gross domestic product. And consumption expenditure is obviously related to income levels. Now, there has been a downward trend in income uh, lately, especially uh, uh, compared to last quarter and this quarter. Mm -hmm. And when you take that into account, about 71.1% of the country's workforce, as per the 2011 census, belong to rural areas. The aspect of wage that workers get becomes critically important when, it, when you talk about it in the context of consumption. And this is where something like minimum wages comes into picture. And this is simple... Uh, uh, supply and demand economics. If you don't have wages or uh, respectable wages, wages that take into reality of modern day society, 
your consumption levels are going to drop and if your consumption levels are going to drop your economy is going to take a hit so really speaking if you're not protecting the workers their wages their the, the way they work and their working conditions your the economy will naturally take a hit so i i feel like this when a lot of people talk about welfare legislation versus economic growth they're talking about it into different uh, universes when they're actually part and parcel and go hand in hand uh, with that in mind i feel like in india now in 21st century india we have a situation where there is excessive regulation uh, but at the same time zero benefit to workers in the sense that um, intrusive regulations from the government which which are very difficult to comply or onerous to comply if i'm not mistaken there are about 40 plus central legislations on uh, labor related matters and many more legislations state specific legislations as well at the same time these legislations don't necessarily protect the workers so what you essentially have is a mechanism for rent seeking where uh, bureaucratic forces try and extract as much from companies from workmen in order to to just on the plank of these labor legislations which is not really helping anyone in fact there was a very recent uh, report by the london school of economics on this point where they said that even ostensibly pro labor legislations have in fact hurt uh, workers in the sense that they further led to impoverishment they haven't led to ease of doing business so it really not um, helped india or the labor or the the working class all that much of course the government now is trying to rationalize these laws and trying to make a consolidated uh, code by cutting down the number cutting down the number of laws we have to just four in a consolidated manner so i think we have now what the government the government right now is trying to do is making four codes the code of wages the code of industrial relations the code on social security and the code on occupational safety and health which uh, particularly is designed keeping in mind migrant workers so of course we are moving towards that direction we're trying to trim the fat so so to speak uh, but i also feel that there are problems as well and there's a long way to go for india to meet its constitutional obligations under the fundamental rights the dpsps and of course the what the preamble yeah. itself states yes sir uh, in regards to that sir what you stated yes it makes sense uh, it is a very uh, true sentiment or like a statement to make that the labor industry in india especially is over regulated and under governed and the problem to that uh, it stems usually from the fact that the bureaucratic hurdles many of these labors have to uh, overcome are usually extremely tiresome and time consuming for a labor who labor who is like working on a daily wage doesn't cannot really aff- uh, afford to go ahead and fight for his rights because of the fact that there is a family at home who is waiting for him irrespective of how much he earns the fact that he earns is in itself is important in uh, at the end of the day but so uh, since you stated that uh, there is a lot of over regulation that even if it means pro labor ends up being anti labor uh, so so can you comment on the fact that you know governments not irrespective whether it is in india or whether let's say the labor government labor party in britain in itself they usually place the onus of this responsibility or complying with these labor regulations on the businessmen or the contractors or the people who hire these laborers and what do you have to say so like so if there is an onus being placed on businessmen and that that makes them not hire that many laborers on a long term basis 
what is the intermediate solution uh, that people can find that even you know bureaucrats who can form policy and also for uh, all of these businessmen who can comply with these policies yeah so i understand that there is a problem in terms of uh, over regulation that i mentioned earlier but at i think the focus of legislation should be less bureaucracy and more uh, protection right so a lot of comply i i feel like a lot of uh, costs relating to compliance so for example there are multiple codes where you need to file multiple documentations so they were making cost of compliance ex- cost of compliance high for companies and a lot of companies obviously are not in a position to meet those particular costs and, and as a consequence making compliance with those legislations itself problematic it also doesn't help that the government is more often than not lackadaisical in its attempt to try and ensure compliance so the easiest way uh, of course there are no one stop solutions for for these kind of problems and the multi layered complex problems but one of the things that the government can look for and i think what the government is attempting to do is cut trim down the fat um ensure that there are lesser compliance related filings and bureaucratic uh, inter- interactions on this front but at the same time ensuring that whatever whatever fat is being trimmed so to speak doesn't take away from the labor protection or the labor welfare which is the key goal of these uh, legislations it can't be that to ensure ease of business and to ensure compliance you take an axe and just decide to chop off mm-hmm. everything that is there for the benefit of laborers so uh, i i get i get that point so but then do you think an over emphasis on labor satisfaction will play the pleasure to unions and concentrate too much power into these particular bodies because i personally feel that if you start paying more attention to labor satisfaction then it does overpower the labor unions so could you just like explain us this point okay uh, on that question i think the question assumes two things uh, and i think these are two assumptions that we need to engage with one of course is that the idea that trade unions in india have uh, power power in the country or that they're already powerful in india and the second aspect is that labor satisfaction as i already mentioned labor satisfaction and welfare comes at the cost of economy now i think this was mr amit basol from um, azim premji institute uh, university sorry he had one, mentioned in one interview that uh, india and this is a stated fact that india is a labor surplus country so you have a lot of uh, supply in terms of labor and especially from the spectrum of the lower educated uh, workforce which automatically means that you that puts you in a lower bargaining position because you have so many people out there to do the job and the second aspect is i think in 2011 the the international labor organization conducted a study and they found that only 13% of uh, the formal indian se- uh, sector uh, employees were members of trade unions so realistically speaking trade unions as such do not have that much power not only because of the fact that there is uh, excessive labor there's a labor surplus as such and also because the membership in these trade unions is not all that high is all not all that high so i'm not sure whether it is right to say that uh, this will labor uh, legislations or 
regulations that cater towards labor welfare will actually strengthen trade unions. In fact, I would go one step further and say we need to ensure that trade unions are made even more powerful than they are than they are right now. And of course, as I've already mentioned earlier, that this dichotomy between uh, economic growth and labor sa labor satisfaction, which is also another assumption in the question, is not true. And in fact, uh, one thing I, I wanted to talk about is this idea called co-determination. It's followed in Germany. Uh, I don't know. I think the the German word is mit best monk. I don't know if I pronounced that right. But basically, it talks about worker participation in the board of a company and general management. So what this basically means is that uh, members of the trade union, members of a particular employer are also part of the board itself of the company. And studies have shown that this is actually beneficial for the company in the long run because what happens is the company ends up focusing on long-term productivity as opposed to short-term goals like uh, driving up profits. Yes. And the focus is both large scale. It is the employee, the future of the company and the shareholders as well. Yes, so sir. the money then, they, they ensure that the money ends up going towards the company itself. It's reinvested in the company or at the hands of the workmen as opposed to paying fat paychecks to executives and therefore concentrating yeah. wealth. Now, of course, yes. the question then becomes what does this do to the economy? And I think very few people will argue that Germany is one of the most, uh, one of the strongest economies in Europe. So co-determination is something that, uh, which talks about giving workers more rights and making them stronger in terms of bargaining power, which is something that I think India needs to move towards. And interestingly, yes, the constitution of India, in fact, recognizes this. If you see article 43A, article yeah. 43A actually talks about participation of workers in the management of, company, of industries and companies. Yes, so it is within the constitutional framework itself that we move towards co-determination uh, in the way companies work, in the way laborers are treated and the way the economy grows itself. And this is, you can see it peppered all around the constitution, in fact. Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Sir. Uh, in the lens of the constitution, yes, labor rights in India do lack the sort of mechanisms that countries across the world have. But now coming to the main topic that we want to speak to you about today, sir, uh, the migrant worker crisis. Now, in April and May, there was a lot of like commotion, obviously, in, in terms of these emotional and yet moving pictures that we saw of laborers literally walking from one place to their own home place because of the fact that there was very less transportation or very uh, few mechanisms that put in place for such a situation or how to deal with such a situation. And then we also saw that there was a huge public outcry as to what the government was really doing. They took a lot of days to respond. And when they did you know, with the Shamik Express and all of that, there was again a lot, a barrage of criticism and like people calling out the government for not being able to do something for the people who work for them in itself. So regarding that, regarding the migrant worker crisis, do you think that the government failed in creating alternated uh, mechanisms on, and if they did, what exactly would you propose in order to like make it better if and when such a situation arises again? Okay, so um, firstly, I'd like to preface this, the answer to this question to say that, of course, no government in the world could have anticipated how 2020 would play out. Uh, yeah. Either the pandemic or the economic uh, fallout of the pandemic. It's, no government in the world could have uh, foreseen it. Having an... I would be, I would be, it would be incorrect for me to say that the government has not tried to do something. So, for example, champagnes or cash transfers to uh, workers. Having said that, ha could the government have done more? 
yes could the government have executed uh, or dealt with this crisis in a better way definitely uh, so for example um, proper planning the uh, the lockdown for example was announced in the last very last second like there was a four hour notice given to the general public about it and if uh, there are the, the news reports also about how a lot of government agencies and state governments for that matter had no clue that the lockdown was about to be imposed with uh, yes. for, uh, around when the central government came up with that decision there was no consultation therefore and that gives very little time for everyone the state governments the state governments departments within the central government itself to actually figure out and coordinate better in terms of how to deal with the fallout especially when it comes to people leaving given the the migration that has taken place from rural to urban areas and what would be yes. the consequences so i feel on the on a preliminary level there was the planning was uh, could have been done better uh, not to say that there should not have been a lockdown of course and that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is that perhaps people could have been given notice or at least the government agencies could have been given some advance notice so that there could be contingencies kept in place which yes. i think was the first issue that i i think that the government failed at the second thing from a very from a legal perspective since we are talking about migrant workers here is, let me just take the example of the interstate migrant migrant workmen act now this act which passed in 1979 it is intended to protect migrant workers so it, for example it has provisions that provide for equal pay for migrant workers and non migrant workers within the same within the establishment it provides for allowances for relocations uh, among other things one other thing that the act requires is um, registration of these migrant workers now when you're talking about registration of these migrant workers uh, a lot it turns out and a lot of experts have also chimed in on this it seems that the government's past and current forgot about the existence of this act so there was very little implementation of what the act requires so when the act says then you that employers and contractors need to register the names of these migrant workers nobody followed it nor not not the companies under reported it because obviously they don't want to comply with it and the state governments and state authorities decided not to pursue it because either they couldn't care, they, they couldn't care or they as i said rent seeking became the norm and as a consequence what has happened is you didn't have a list a comprehensive list of migrant workers now if the states knew exactly how many migrant workers were there to be uh, for dealing for, uh, to to ensure that the situation will handle handle better i guess the governments could be better placed then to take remedial measures but without a comprehensive list where a lot of migrant workers were were clearly outside the purview of state records it be, obviously would become more and more difficult for them to deal with it yes. similarly cash transfers on on just on this registration point again now cash transfers great i am of course not an economist so i can't speak to the whether speak to the question of whether the amount of given in cash transfers or who it reached was correct or whether anything more could have been done i don't know but again the question of registration there was low registration uh, of uh, say construction workers uh, i think there was uh, only about 94% of workers were not registered under the building and other construction workers act similarly oh. i think there was 6% of informal workers were registered under the unorganized workers social security act and so when you're trying to uh transfer cash and identify beneficiaries with such low registration numbers you're obviously going to fall short of who exactly 
is uh, entitled to this amount. And therefore, what you're trying to do, though in principle may sound correct, it's not actually reaching them, reaching to the ground. And then the and so the issue becomes that prior to the pandemic itself, what the government ought to have done is just to ensure compliance with the laws, as onerous as they would be. So one last issue on this aspect, or one last thing on this, what the government did with I think short planning was the fact that um, they they should the MHA notification on on payment of wages. Now this payment of wages uh, notification essentially said that all employers should pay wages and not deduct during the lockdown. But hardly anyone actually enforced it. And the government had no mechanism to ensure that it was enforced. At the same time, the Supreme Court said it's between the employer and the employees. And so there was great confusion and it felt like it wasn't a plan that was thought through because how could you force something on employers as right? In principle, it sounds right. But if there's no money generated in the economy, who's going to pay for it? So I feel like yes. a lot of these policy decisions weren't thought through. And uh, if there was more thought put into it, if there was a more consultative process between uh, both the industry, which there was, but there was no consultation process with the workers, trade unions and workers and uh, employees, I think we could have had come out with a more comprehensive way to deal with the crisis. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for that in-depth uh, analysis of what exactly happened during the migrant labor crisis. Now, sir, coming to the larger picture and like the more important question, this is my last question to you. And also it's a two-part question. Basically, we, uh, in terms of labor and in terms of employment uh, in general in India, right, there is, again, a lot of public outcry in terms of the unemployment rates in the country and like how there is no job security. So in comparison to the world and in comparison to, let's say, the ILO standards or the general standards that the United Nations has set, do you think India still has a long way to go in order to establish satisfactory uh, job security? And like, how do you see, uh, you know, you us getting a solution for this menace of unemployment that has plagued this country, at least in this particular de decade? Yeah, so adding on to Sairat's question also, like, if you could provide us with four or five points, uh, which would help us, uh, which would help our viewers understand the issue also would be great, sir. Yeah. So uh, I think in, two, in June, the International Trade Union Confederation came out with a report. And it unfortunately ranked India as one of the 10 worst countries in the world when it comes to worker rights. Because of regressive laws, poor bargaining power of workers, and just uh, mass dismissals, and that problem gets comp and this issue of uh, job security gets compounded when you look at the income inequality in India. Right now, I think India is one of the most unequal countries in terms of in uh, wealth, uh, where 73% of the country's wealth is with the top 1% of the population. So. Clearly, we have a long, long way to go when it comes to job security in the country. Now, as I said at the start that uh, the government is trying to consolidate uh, legislations and make sure that we trim the fact. But, and so for example, now they've come up with the code of wages, which deals with a lot of issues relating to minimum wage and payment of bonuses, et cetera. Now on first blush, of course, there is, I, I feel, the code of wages is good in that it provides for a more consultative process and uh, is, uh, provides for gender neutral pay. At the same time, there are some significant problems with, the, with such legislation. So for example, it doesn't, it pegs payment of wages, uh, minimum wages on the kind of work you do. Now, 
the Supreme Court in uh, this judgment called Express Newspaper, which was passed in 1959, mentioned mm. that wages also has to include frugal comforts uh, under the Constitution. And frugal comforts like medical expenditure or uh, expenditure for your the child's education or marriage, etc. So when you peg edu- your minimum wages to the kind of work you do, it has no, re- no connection to what the lifestyle you want to live, right? So as a consequence, how much job security do you really have when it comes to wages? When what, how much money you pay, you get is only determined by what kind of work you do, but divorce from realities of how society works. Right? Makes sense. Sir. Makes sense. That's the first, that's, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of, of it, of course, is uh, now the government is proposing something called the industry relations code. Now there they have some, they have this concept called fixed term contracts. Fixed term contracts is is uh, the opposite of permanent con- permanent uh, employment. So you you give a contract to a worker for a fixed term, right? Now the problem is that um, globally fixed term contracts have led to significantly uh, higher rates of transition into unemployment, right? And in March 2015, the International Labour Organization carried out a study to find out that at least to fixed term contracts lead to less stability. And similarly, during economic downturns, these fixed term contracts are what lead to uh, uh, more unemployment in in countries. So they're the first ones to take a hit as opposed to permanent employees. So when you talk about job security, at least from recent developments, it doesn't give me that much confidence that we're moving in the right direction. So, and a lot of these these changes are being carried out with the, again, with the understanding that uh, lesser labor, welfare legislations lead to high growth in economy. But this has been proved to be incorrect. In fact, the problem is not in 2015 when Rajasthan decided to do away, to, to amend significantly some of the labor legislation like the Factories Act and the Industrial Disputes Act. Multiple studies were conducted to find out even the businesses believed that it was not actually labor legislation that harmed the business prospects and economic growth. What actually harmed them was other factors like whether they had water, whether they had power, whether there was enough adequate power connection, whether the financing was adequate, whether the credit lines were proper. So these kind of things actually determine. But I feel like because the understanding is labor legislation, labor welfare equals poor economic growth. I think that's something that we need to get out of our head if you want to progress further for, and ensure that there is job security and meaningful work. The focus should be, I think, towards meaningful work as opposed to just economic growth. Yes, sir. Oh, sir. Uh, Makes sense. Very, very rightfully said, sir. I think like in terms of actually so- solving this unemployment unemployment problem, there is there can be a lot of regulation that can come into place and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of things that the government and different, you know, stages of the government can do, even at the village level where you know, central legislation can't really reach or be that effectively implemented. There has to be a lot of change in terms of the respect that is given to laborers and also the employment opportunities that can be created through job creators than job seekers. That being said, sir, uh, we thank you from the bottom of our heart for being part of this podcast today. This is the inaugural edition of the Sustainable Grid podcast and we are extremely happy for you to have been here and to have inaugurated this and being our first guest speaker for this entire podcast. Thank you for having me and uh, just Good luck for the rest of the podcast. This is an exciting uh, idea that you guys have and I hope, I wish you guys all the best. Thank you so much, sir.
Thank you.